This is the Power of Genetics podcast, the podcast designed to help visionary practitioners build a more successful practice, transform more lives, and lead their patients into the future of personalized health. In each episode, I'll interview successful practitioners and leading thought leaders who will share their insights and expertise to help you prepare your practice for what lies ahead. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe, and now let's get into today's episode. Welcome, Dr. Perlmutter. I have been waiting many, many years to meet you in person. And so even better that I get to interview you on the Path Genetics podcast. So a big welcome to you. Delighted to be here. Thank you. We're still not meeting in person, though, but uh, that'll happen. No, that's true. But at least now that we've met one-on-one, that's um, right. next time I see you at a conference, I'm going to walk right up to you and introduce myself. And at least you're going to know exactly who I am. I will. So yeah, that helps. For sure. <laughs> that helps. So as we were discussing just before we started, you know, what really has been so powerful about the, the seasons that we've done at the Power of Genetics is being able to engage and speak to people like ourselves who really fundamentally changed our journey in nutrition. You know, remembering that I started out as a dietitian, three weeks in, had this horrible feeling that I've made the biggest mistake of my life, oh. have spent the last 25 years trying to understand nutrition and not what was taught to me in my dietetics degree and, and find answers. And that was obviously my journey in genetics. But you are someone who really have rewritten the book on how we understand practice um, nutrition, and you constantly are doing that. I see, and we will talk about it a little bit at the end about your new book, Drop Asset, because you're doing it again. You're kind of shifting us and pushing us again. But let's go back. And if you don't mind, rather than me reading out the short bio that I've been given, I'd love you to tell us who you are, what your journey was, how you went from being an MD, starting out to being to being who you are today. <laughs> Um, I don't know what that means being who you are today, but I, I will indicate that I was recently at a store, a Marine store buying something for our boat. And the guy uh, looked at my credit card and then he looked at me and said, you're that guy. And I don't know what that meant. I mean, you know, the guy was in the paper for who, something terrible. I didn't know anyway. So I don't know what that means to be that guy, but I can, I can tell you, I'm well aware of the fact that my journey has been uh, nuanced and influenced uh, over the years. And I think it is a reflection of my underlying personality to be a combination of both disruptive and inquisitive. Uh, generally, being inquisitive uh, is disruptive because being inquisitive means you're going to challenge the status quo. And as it related to uh, being in med even in medical school, uh, I was challenging the status quo by wondering uh, what else was out there that we weren't being told, especially as related to nutrition and lifestyle. But, you know, you kind of in medical school have to take a deep breath and suck it up and put that kind of query on the back burner because you have to get through uh, with your work and get your degree and then do your your postgraduate training, et cetera. Uh, but I will I will tell you that I entered neurology and practiced mainstream neurology for ten years in a group with other uh, two other neurologists, and did the thing you know which was seeing a boatload of patients every day, and treating them by writing prescriptions for their symptoms, and you know it was a, a great way of making a living. You know the insurance companies would pay you to do that, to basically supply pharmaceuticals to people 
to cover up their symptoms, treating the smoke while we ignored the fire. And I, with time, as I began exploring integrative medicine, holistic medicine, and ultimately functional medicine, began to realize that it was not good enough to treat the smoke, that we needed to address the fire. Why are neurological issues happening in the first place? And I came to understand that the underpinnings of neurodegenerative disease were quite similar to other things that had already entered the arena of prevention, if you will. That inflammation as a fundamental mechanism uh, of heart disease, coronary heart disease, was also underlying things like Alzheimer's and immune disruption in multiple sclerosis might have its origin perhaps even in the gut. And these were heretical considerations in the day. We're talking 25 years ago. But nonetheless, there was plenty of good literature out there that was very supportive of these ideas that we could deal with patients in a preventive way, even in the field of neurology. Think about that. Preventive medicine in the field of neurology. And it was, it was then, and even to a, a pretty significant degree today, something that we just don't talk about. Yeah, we know about a heart-smart diet. We know that exercise is good for your heart and might help with your blood sugar management, et cetera, and that diet influences inflammation, for example. But to connect the dots to blood sugar, from blood sugar to brain degeneration, and from inflammation to brain degeneration, that just isn't happening. It wasn't happening back then, and it's scarcely happening even today, despite the robust literature that makes these connections, makes it very clear. We, in, jam in mainstream, focus on only coming up with novel golden or silver bullets to treat problems as opposed to keeping people healthy. And I was not satisfied with that. And ultimately, I left my practice uh, after 10 years and was told summarily that I would fail uh, because no one in my city would refer patients to you moving forward because of your new interests, et cetera. And frankly, for the most part, that was true. Uh, I wasn't moving forward getting many recommendations or referrals from uh, local doctors because I was doing things that were way out there. I was actually, believe it or not, asking people what they ate for breakfast. And, uh, <laughs> how wow. well were they sleeping? Were you getting any exercise? What is your family history? I mean, my goodness, who would... In an, as a neurologist, who would talk <laughs> about that? So those doors closed, but at the same time, other doors opened. Other doors, uh, things like the Institute for Functional Medicine, American Holistic Medical Society, various groups that were more uh, embracing of this ideology appeared on my radar and ultimately began to invite a neurologist, because that was so underrepresented, to speak at these yeah. various events. And it became clear that first, the, the underlying issues related to neurodegenerative conditions were quite familiar to these audiences because this was a territory that they had already explored. Changes in the gut bacteria, inflammation, the effect of oxidative stress, for example, genetic predisposition, all of these were somewhat familiar topics to the functional medicine or integrative medicine crowd. You know, the new part of the discussion was that these were now being related to neurodegenerative conditions. And that was, you know, I think uh, an aha moment, both for the audience and certainly for yours truly. So I, I found a, a very acquiescent and welcoming audience amongst this group. 
and really began to realize that I needed to do more of this work and to begin documenting what we were doing and even more so our success rate, if you will, in treating patients with issues like inflammatory conditions and autoimmune conditions like MS by not just using mainstream approaches, but also asking the question, what is regulating immune function in the human body and how can we improve that preemptively? And we began seeing really uh, some exciting things happening, some very uh, wonderful uh, turnarounds with our autoimmune patients, for example, and headache patients, and even uh, patients with cognitive impairment. And that kind of approach, again, remained out of bounds for mainstream neurology. But at that point, I had accepted the fact that this was no longer going to be my destiny and that I was going to pursue a more integrative approach to treating neurological problems. And ultimately, it became clear that I needed to write a book, and I began that process and ultimately wrote a lot, you know, several the, books. It, prior was, that to the, was that prior to Grain Brain? I thought Grain Brain, Brain was, Brain the was first. my sixth book. So I, I had did not know five that. books self published wow. prior to that. Okay. And then I decided I wasn't going to sell. I was basically self-publishing books and then giving them out in my in my office as <laughs> yeah. teaching tools. Yeah, I decided then I wanted to reach a larger audience, and I wrote a manuscript uh, that ultimately became Grain Brain, and gained a an agent, a uh, publishing house, and you know that became a worldwide. A book, 32 languages, and uh, that. That's right. And not just the notion of avoiding refined carbohydrates and sugars, but also gluten. But beyond that, I mean, the main message was that we have significant control over our cognitive destiny. And that was, I think, uh, a revelation for both the mainstream and, all, and also for medical practitioners that what people choose to do day in and day out dramatically influences the destiny of their brain at brains. And so, you know, simple data like 2013 New England Journal of Medicine, September publication indicating that even a very subtle elevation of blood sugar translates to a pretty dramatic increased risk for dementia. No one was talking about that. And finally, in Grain Brain, we made that information known and people began to say, my goodness, even though I'm not diabetic, I'm only pre-diabetic, I need to do better than that. I need to really rein in my blood sugar, if you want to focus on that for just a moment. I think that's the traction point. I think it really empowered a lot of people to see things from a different perspective. Rather than the dogma of live your life however you choose and mainstream yeah. medicine is going to bail you out, Yeah, recognizing that that is flawed, to empower people and uh, give them the tools to rewrite their health destiny, I think was uh, a pivotal moment. And that really opened the door for me to continue what I was doing. And at that point, I really began exploring all kinds of really unique ideas. Some of them were dead ends. Uh, some of them really turned out to, to offer up some very powerful tools in neurology, which you know didn't have a lot of tools and still doesn't really have a lot of tools, especially, as you know, uh, as it relates to treating Alzheimer's disease. But, yeah. uh, you know, we began exploring intravenous glutathione, uh, dietary changes, looking at the gut bacteria, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And, you know, of course, these pursuits led to other books and I think a larger platform for me. And I very much uh, enjoyed that and continue to enjoy it because, you know, at the heart of it, the, the word doctor doesn't mean healer, it means teacher. 
And, you know, my transition has been to recognize that the larger audience I can reach by podcasting like we are right now, or writing books, or various venues, going to lectures, speaking at various venues around the world, the more impact I can have and the more empowering my message can be for others so that they don't end up in a situation where they or their loved ones is in a conundrum where they don't really have a way out. I mean, I experienced that for 35 years in the medical practice and experienced it personally as well with my father dying of Alzheimer's. So, you know, I know what people go through and whatever uh, I can do, we can do as a team to reduce how frequently those events occur. I think that became the mission. And, you know, I learned that I have a, a, a particular skill set of being able to take complex information and making it presentable and understandable to a wide audience. That's something I've recognized, uh, a skill that I happen to have. I recognize many of my limitations, that's for sure. Yes. That's a good thing. But that's one area that I really, um, I think I do pretty well. And so I've exploited the heck out of it. And it led to uh, my being on your podcast today. And, and and many other things, many awards, many books. So I think that there's two things that come to mind. So the first thing that I wanted to to come reach back on is the first thing is, you know, one of the most powerful I, things I heard on, on one of the podcasts I did was this idea that Alzheimer's will become an optional condition, that it's not, de- it's not a destiny. And I think your work and, and Dr. Bredesen as well, like have just led us down this, so I have a strong family history of Alzheimer's and I, I tell you a great story. I was, I, because I've been in genetics for such a long time, the first, you know, right from 25 years ago, I knew I had an E3, E4, APO E3, 4 and a strong family history. And so I just had this sense that that was my destiny, that because of my family history and the three, four, this is in the early days of genetics when I didn't understand a whole lot at all, actually. And there was always a sense of inevitability around Alzheimer's. So it's something that I've been following very closely. And about four or five years ago, maybe a bit longer than that, when I started looking at not just genetic sequence, looking at SNPs and variants, but actually looking at gene expression and epigenetics, and also starting to look at all the other genes involved in cognitive function and not just APOE, I started getting a much better sense of understanding, you know, the the kind of more genetic ecosystem of Alzheimer's, and then also the power of what I call micro decisions, the ability to to really guide that destiny that isn't inevitable. So for me, I, I have a very personal journey in it as well, and so I I think I'm particularly you know connected to the work you've done because. I, for so long, carried it around like a cloud with me, just going, this is where I'm going. And now have been able to break through that and say, like, I have the power and control to just, so I just wanted to share that story with you. But No, um, I, I think what you just said is very valuable. And I think most people adopt that position. You know, most people who, who decide they want to know their genetic profile are going to be in a position of looking at that profile and the interpretation and basically uh, feel like they're at greater risk for whatever it may be based upon what, what they've learned. And I, I would say that the challenge is to change the context and yes. the pers- perspective. And first, the, the step back that needs to be taken 
is to ask yourself at this stage, in this century, in this time that we live, that your genetic profile is the manifestation of thousands and thousands of generations of refinement, refinement with the goal of survival. So why would your specific genetic array be something that is looked upon as a sentence as it relates to Alzheimer's or any other uh, issue for that matter? When we take the, when we change our, uh, the context and we look at it from the perspective of the refinement of your particular genome or anybody walking the planet today, that there's a, what we call an evolutionary environmental mismatch, right. that your refinement, the genetic profile right. you have has been refined to allow you the maximal opportunity for survival and disease resistance and procreation in a given set of circumstances, which is not the circumstance. Not what we we're enduring at the in moment. Today. So as a matter of fact, you know, you have uh, for, for the APOE 3-4 profile, I think most neurologists would tell you, oh, you know, you, you are at a higher risk for Alzheimer's. There's really nothing we can do. Maybe you could start taking a medication now if that were even <laughs> uh, a consideration. Yeah. The reality yeah. is that carrying APOE 3-4 or even 4-4 uh, is a survival mechanism. It's, it's a, survival. a survival. It was mechanism. the original. It was the original version of the APOE gene. That's right. But why yeah. is it a survival mechanism? Why should we uh, look upon it with gratitude? Because that APOE four that you carry and others do carry uh, depends on where you are in, in the world. But you know, as many as twenty five, thirty mm-hmm. percent of people carry mm-hmm. it, uh, at least one allele. Uh, is very protective as it relates to your brain in the context of parasitic infection. That those equatorial, uh, tropical uh, individuals right now carrying APOE4 allele, either one or two, actually have a reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease because of the fact that they are infested with parasites, which, you know, likely has been the human (laughs) condition for as long as we have walked the planet. So it's the context of how do these genetic variants, why would they have persisted? If APOE4 is so bad, why would we have it? Exactly. You know, if type 2 diabetes were such a bad thing, why would we have it today to such an extent that we do? Because again, we are changing the evolutionary environmental mismatch. We're changing the relationship between nature and nurture, between our physiology as determined by our genome and how we inform our physiology based upon our lifestyle experiences, the sleep we get or not, exercise, and certainly food and, and drugs that we may take. And environment, yeah. That's right. So it's so, that mismatch. Yeah. It's that the, the presence Between of our, our ancestral and our choices. Yeah. Challenging our genome that has yeah. these now maladaptive expressions that we call disease. You've got to realize you have an incredibly refined uh, genome that should uh, under the right circumstances, pave the way for you to have a very, very long and healthy, healthy life. Now, when we take that perspective, then we have to ask ourselves, okay, what's changed? What are the day-to-day influences juxtaposed on your genetic profile that are then creating this mismatch and, and manifesting as disease? You know, and that's the story then that we get to when we talk about our lifestyle changes. And, you know, you mentioned drop acid, my new book. That's a classic example of humans genetically uh, having this massive change in our ability to rid our bodies of uric acid. This occurred in our primate ancestors around 14 million years ago. We had a gene, 
that coated for an enzyme called uricase. Uricase breaks down uric acid and we would excrete it. We lost that gene as a survival mechanism. Therefore, we didn't have uricase. Our uric acid levels increased and it allowed us to store a little bit more body fat so we could survive during times of food scarcity. So what was once a survival mechanism today during times of food abundance, uh, similarly is, you know, is threatening our health. And that's, so it's a different perspective that I think is very worthwhile to adopt. And we always say, oh my gosh, I have the MTHFR polymorphism. Oh my gosh, don't get us started. (laughs) And I do, as a matter of fact. But what might the selective advantage have been for my uh, ancestors? It's, you know, it's not bad. Absolutely. We look so, upon beta amyloid, yeah. you know, that uh, protein that misfolds and accumulates in the brain. That's always bad. Therefore, we need to develop drugs to get rid of it because, as we all know, that causes Alzheimer's. Well, actually, that's not true. Uh, synaptoplasticity, the ability of neurons to connect to each other, is actually increased uh, in the presence of low levels of beta amyloid. So, you know, all that glitters isn't gold. Modern medicine likes to focus on one variable and Singular answer, that's right. And they aren't working. So yeah. we have and to it's ask the same with genetics, modern medicine. Right. And in fact, the marketplace loves to focus on the APOE and the MTHFR and the COMS. And so I just want to go back because it's, it's, I mean, I love what you're saying because it's so what I teach. So I was teaching this week and I, I do this whole thing about judgment, judgment of genetics. And we talk about the use of words like mutation and defect. And, and the thing that I love to get across is you should never bring a value judgment to a gene, ever. When you see a SNP or a change, I call them spelling changes I'm teaching, it's never good or bad. It's what we did in nutrition many years ago, this kind of good, bad concept. A, a gene variant is either good or bad. It's evolutionary biology. And it's all it is is insightful. But we should never judge because it's there for a reason. And if we can use it as an insight to understand, that is the gift of genetics. So I, I'm very much on the same plane. Is I, I will never have, no one's allowed to use the word mutation or defect. Oh, I used to hear defect in MTHFR. The second thing, which is so important to me, is the single SNP versus the polygenic environment. You know, that this... The, the genetic testing industry lost its way so badly by placing these APOEs and MTHFRs on these pedestals and saying, you know, they're associated with every single disease and, you know, autism and ADHD. And and then we created a whole lot of supplement industry around it. So those are the two things that I feel very strongly about. So one is actually three, if I have to, one is don't judge, do not bring judgment to genetics because it's evolutioning. And the second thing is, Always look at the genetics in the context of all the other genes that are working in its environment and, of course, everything else that's happening. How can we leverage those variants that's an epigenetics. Uh, for better That was outcome. my third thing. That yeah. was my and, third and how thing. how do we leverage them yeah. once we understand what they are and what they do and why they may not necessarily be fully adaptive in our modern world, then what can we do to change expression, change you know, the expression of that polymorphism, if you will? And think about how, you know, again, take a step back. Why was this an attribute rather than a detriment to us? And let's take advantage of it. Let's look upon it as, uh, you know, in, in the positive. And ha- but the question is, how then do you make that happen? So 
You know, I, and that's not always an easy question to answer. We know that APOE4, for example, is a positive attribute in people with a parasitic load. Does that mean then people with an APOE4 variant, I didn't say defect, I said variant, should <laughs> have uh, whipworm eggs implanted in, into them? I mean, that's that's being done to control autoimmune conditions very effectively, as a matter of fact, to infect these individuals with whipworms. Uh, maybe that's a solution because maybe in then the context of that parasite, you will see that carrying the APOE4 variant then gets to be that positive thing that we know that it is in other circumstances, or at least was for our ancestors. Yeah. I always also talk about E4 as it's, it's, the other thing about it is it's hyper responsive. So we always, I always say, do we not training dietitians? You know, that when you see E4, you should, I call it dietitian's best friend because it's hyper-responsive to the environment. So you usually, if you can control the environment, nutrition, et cetera, lifestyle, then you usually get a response in a patient more than you do. So, so I always try and teach the positive of it and say, like, let's, let's work with it and not against it because actually we're very likely to see an outcome when we see that E4, exactly like you're saying, there's something we can do. Well, yeah, and I don't necessarily know that there's a really good marker for affecting that outcome measurably uh, as it relates to E4, as you might see, for example, by following homocysteine in somebody who has MTHFR and you're intervening with uh, methyl donors, for example. There, you can clearly follow your progress in terms of offsetting the potentially detrimental effect of that genetic uh, issue. I don't necessarily feel that there's a huge surrogate for APOE4 that can be followed that is not, as no. yet. But, uh, you know, there are various others that uh, can clearly, we, we know that lipid profiles can be followed uh, in terms of how we intervene with people with other genetic profiles. Uh, certainly blood sugar can be followed. Ease of getting into ketosis, for example, something that, that reflects uh, SNPs. Even uric acid, we've just uh, seen identification of SNPs in the URAT1 uh, gene that dramatically relate to risk for hyperuricemia, a powerful risk for metabolic issues. So as we intervene to lower uric acid, we can then see the marker, uric acid getting lower, and then potentially downstream from that improvement in things like body mass index and certainly blood sugar and insulin sensitivity and blood pressure for that matter. And the thing about uric acid measurement, it's an easy biomarker to measure, isn't it? It's not, it, is. it doesn't, I think it that, doesn't, yeah. You know, many healthcare providers over the years are quite familiar with it, but only in the context of gout. Yes, and uh, right. you know, even to this day, when, you know, people are getting, asking their doctors for a uric acid level, the response is often, well, we're not going to check that because you don't have gout. And that, uh, is to me bothersome on, on two levels. If you only want to talk about gout, I'd like to know how close I am to getting gout. So I'd like to know my uric mm -hmm. acid level. It's much like the rejection of people wanting to use a continuous glucose monitor because they don't Because they have don't diabetes. have diabetes. Yeah. Right. I mean, I use a, a continuous glucose monitor and I can assure you, I, I, I also am, do. You know, my fasting blood sugar is in the upper 70s. So, but I want to know so that I'm not pre diabetic or, or ultimately diabetic. That's how you keep people healthy, by checking their uric acid levels today. But I think the word is getting out amongst uh, healthcare providers that uric acid throws a much bigger net metabolically than simply being related to having gout. 
so gout's the end point. It's kind of that end disease that we're trying to not get to. And so, I, I mean, I love this conversation because I meet a lot of people with gout and there's, I mean, it's a terrible condition and it's extremely painful. But as you say, you know, no one's measuring for it until you've got the gout, in which case, you know, we're 20 years in, 30 years it's in. It's reactive medicine, not yeah. proactive medicine. And, you know, you're right that, you know, gout isn't the issue here. Here uh, in America, gout affects about three to 4% of adults. But, you know, about 40% of American adults is either pre-diabetic or, frankly, you know, type 2 diabetic. And mm -hmm. uric acid's playing a big role there. So, uh, you know, even from a reactive uh, perspective, we need to know people's uric acid levels right now uh, because getting their uric acid level under control is a great way to help control their blood sugar. Is it going to remove their diabetes, cure their diabetes? Not likely, but it may certainly allow a uh, dramatic reduction, if not cessation, of their medication. We, we know the ketogenic diet can do that. That's been proven by Dr. Sarah Hallberg for a number of years. So, you know, we are conditioned as mainstream healthcare providers to just simply, you know, you respond X, uh, you say X and I say Y. You say diabetes, yeah. I say metformin. Yeah. You say hypertension, I say whatever the drug may be that uh, I, I read about in, in the magazine ads yesterday. That's the drug I'll write prescription. And then you leave the office, end of story. That was, you know, an interaction that lasted less than 10 minutes. Uh, but, you know, to me, getting back to our your original question, you know, my focus has been to ask why. What is that underlying fire, not just the fact that we have smoke? I gave a talk a couple of years ago to a group of mainstream doctors. Why they invited me, I don't know. <laughs> uh, up in New Jersey. And I asked the audience, I said, what's your go-to for treating type 2 diabetes? And one hand said sulfonylureas. One hand went up and said, you know, low dose of insulin, metformin. All the various drugs were mentioned. And then I asked the audience, I said, well, what happens when you stop that particular drug? And you know, the, unanimously, uh, the comments were, well, after two days or maybe after a week, the blood sugar is going to go back up. So I said then, did you really treat their diabetes or simply treat their blood sugar? And they realized that all of these so-called treatments for diabetes that they're so familiar with are not treating the diabetes at all. They're just treating the manifestation of the insulin yep. resistance, and that is the blood sugar elevation. We could say the same thing about hypertension. What do you use to treat high blood pressure? You're not treating the high blood pressure. You're treating the, the, the measurement. You're not treating whatever the underlying problem may be. So I think it's time that we ask ourselves, hey, why are my patients having these problems in the first place, and what can I do to approach that? I am all in favor of drugs that will lower uh, the blood sugar and use them while you're gaining control over the underlying disease. Yeah, and so I don't want to take up too much time. So I want to end off by with two questions. One is when we go to these conferences that we go to and we have these amazing audiences who are transitioning from kind of Western primary care, medicine and nutrition into our world of functional integrative and they they see you on the stage and they hear this amazing work from challenging the paradigm with grain, you know, grain brain and now with drop acid. Like, what is the advice that you would give them when they're starting out in their journey to be able to, because for any of us, it doesn't happen overnight. It's decades of work and decades of what, what do you think are those key things to, to hand over to them? 
I think that probably the biggest challenge is going to be the confrontation from your peers. It's huge. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, the peer group has always supported these individuals because they're part of the tribe. Suddenly, they're coming up with these ideas that are not part of the playbook. So I think, you know, the first recommendation is to thine own self be true. That let your heart guide you. If uh, you know, this is the path that you've chosen for whatever reason, but, you know, be true to yourself and don't live your life uh, based upon the judgment of others. People in general in, in Western medicine try their very best to maintain the status quo. And if we never deviate from the status quo, we'll never make progress. So we may be wrong uh, and we are wrong, clearly, uh, but I have a sense that we're right more often than we are wrong. But sometimes, you know, it, it's really valuable to instill in your patients the idea of being dynamic in your messaging, that your, your recommendations over time may well change. Let me yeah. give you a very stark example. 25 years ago, uh, if you were a patient coming to see me in my office, I would have told you that your best bet is a low-fat diet. I think yes. it's quite clear. I would have. We were all doing was, that. In, we that were was the information we were getting from yeah. our very best journals. And mm -hmm. I would read, and now we've come to realize how influenced our journals were by interest, the sugar industry, corn, et cetera, and how, what a perversion of, of a truth happened. Uh, and, you know, so I have completely changed that messaging 180 degrees to one that dramatically welcomes healthful fat back to the table. Are there threatening fats? Of course there are. But the idea of, you know, I, I consume a, a liter of olive oil every week, pure fat. And, you know, a couple of decades ago, people would have thought I, that there was something very yeah. wrong with me for doing that. I wish I had done it back then. And I avoided fat, as did many back then. So I think that's challenge number two, is to be comfortable with being wrong and comfortable with explaining to those for whom you render care that your messaging will change over time. And they should welcome that. They shouldn't criticize you for that. They should welcome the fact that you're staying on top of scientific data and making modifications, refining your messaging as time moves forward uh, for their benefit. And the third thing would be to recognize that your ultimate goal is to be a teacher uh, as per the definition of doctor. And the fourth thing is to really feel comfortable that there's a really big group of people out there who welcome you and who love you and who will embrace you and who are going to encourage you to move forward. And it's not going to be your mainstream colleagues or maybe former colleagues. I think that is beautifully said. I won't say another word. <laughs> I can't do better than that. And just as a last question, this is the Power of Genetics um, podcast. And my work, obviously, for the last three decades has been watching genetics unfold and, and bringing both genetics and epigenetics to the practitioner. But how do you see it playing out? How do you see the role of genetics in the future of healthcare, of medicine? And it doesn't have to be primary care medicine. It can be the medicine we're practicing. How do you see it playing out in the next decade? Well, I think we're really pretty much in a very primordial stage of understanding the implications of a person's genetic profile. Uh, that's one input. And I think that we need to, you know, with the use of, of artificial intelligence, be able to input 
a variety of variables in order to be uh, on the firmest ground in terms of making recommendations to individuals. Again, you know, we know that carrying certain polymorphisms might pose a risk and to some degree what we can do to perhaps offset them to some degree, as we mentioned, the MTHFR, some some of the lipid polymorphisms, for example. But there are a lot of uh, variables in terms of specific dietary recommendations and other lifestyle recommendations that can be looked at across very large data sets to gain information in terms of how then to uh, advise that individual. We have sort of disparate camps looking both at, um, you know, the metabolome uh, in the uh, gut bacteria, in the gut, proteome, the gut bacteria genome, the various Mm -hmm. array of strains, et cetera, and then our human genome. And there now, obviously, we're seeing that there is some interplay between the two in terms of commercialization of that data. But I think those are just two areas. And I think the major shift needs to be that we are not nature or nurture. nurture. We are the dance that happens between our nature and our nurture, between our genetic array and the environment, the variables. The choices we we make. And, you know, this notion of genetic determinism is still deeply entrenched, I think, in mainstream medicine. And even the notion of SNPs, you know, these polymorphisms have not very well reached mainstream medicine. The fact that we can affect methylation patterns, for example, and we can uh, see how methylation patterns can change. You know, you look at the work of Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, for example, recently publishing a, a work Uh, demonstrating a specific dietary and lifestyle intervention, changing methylation patterns on the human genome for that, that translated to a younger biological age. I think that's breathtaking information because, you know, people of my generation thought that DNA was, was locked in a glass case. Yeah. That was the primary doctrine of DNA to uh, RNA, to protein, to function and structure. And now that we recognize that uh, this is very circular, there are many feedback pathways, it's very difficult for old guard and even new guard, for example, you know, we, we see what's being taught in medical schools to realize that we profoundly influence that, that, that there is this beautiful dance between our genetics, our physiology and our choices, basically. That's A, very empowering but B gives us a lot of responsibility now, shifts yeah. the responsibility to each and every one of us and away from the physician. As we talked about earlier, we live under a sort of this mentality of I can do whatever the heck I want, stay up late, eat bad food, never exercise because my physician will fix it. Well, we'll fix it, it's not like if you crash your car, you'll get it fixed at a body shop. Yeah. You can't fix your coronary artery disease. You know, you can have a bypass, but, you know, the notion of fixing that problem, I think, you know, it's not realistic. We're not going to, we don't have a fix for, for Alzheimer's that's generally available. Though, when we look at Alzheimer's from a multifactorial uh, approach, like Dr. Dale Bredesen has done, I think we're beginning to realize that you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all fit, no. kind of I- ideology that, that will ultimately work. And that it takes work. So I completely agree with you. And I think it brings it to start, you know, that I started in dietetics and was so disappointed with the conversation. And we're now finally, you know, 20, 30 years later, getting to the conversation around 
understanding when we say food is medicine, we're understanding why we're saying that and we're understanding what those mechanisms are. And I see the future of nutrition being, you know, SNPs, polymorphisms, code, is it just insight? But the real power is going to be what CAR is working on, which is really how do we use nutrition? How do we use the supplements we choose to, to change gene expression and allow our bodies then to heal themselves? And I think for me, that that is the most exciting future of nutrition, where actually nutrition will then come into its own power. And, and, I, and for me, you know, we're starting to see that evolution. And even it took me 15 years working in just kind of snips to realize that the the most powerful conversation was actually nutrition to change gene expression to heal the body. So I look forward to seeing how we Who knew? play that out. I mean, Who think knew? about it. Who knew that, you know, one of the most, perhaps the most important way that we inform our physiology as to the status of the environment around us is through the foods that we eat. And the interpreters of that information are our gut bacteria. So food is, yeah, it's protein, carbohydrates, and fat, and micronutrients, but it's information. It's telling us the seasons, it's telling us yeah. where we live, and it's modifying our gut bacteria such that our gut bacteria change our DNA expression to help us survive. I mean... Therefore, what I'm saying is we owe our ability to survive based upon the health and functionality of these little critters living within us. And we got to get away from calling them germs because germs is, yeah. again, it's derogatory. They're yes. doing everything they possibly yeah. can to keep me alive. And so God bless them. Yeah, we should be taking better care of them. I love that. You I'm going to use that. Wait, but I love it. Dr. Pomisa, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderfully informative. My pleasure. I'm delighted to spend really time with you today. It. Yeah. Thank you. I look forward to, as I say, actually meeting you in person when we're we're in full swing of in-person conferences. And and thank you again so much. You bet. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Power of Genetics podcast, brought to you by 3x4 Genetics. For more episodes, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash podcast. And if you are a licensed health practitioner who would like to apply to join our network of over 1,000 like-minded visionary practitioners, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash apply.